One of the people on our board of directors who um, I've gotten to know is a young woman who grew up in Austin, was adopted. And when she was about 20, she decided to seek out her birth mother. And when she met her birth mother, her birth mother confided that she gave birth to Claire, Claire Caldwell, when she was 13 or 14, and Claire had survived an abortion. All right, welcome everyone to the next episode of the Austin Institute's podcast, Text Ledge. This podcast is all about the Texas legislature and the Texas legislative session. And uh, today we've got a really great episode. Um, I am, as usual, your host, Dr. Kevin Stewart, the executive director of the Austin Institute. My guest today uh, is going to talk to us about uh, the pro-life movement and legislation coming before the session that has to do with pro-life issues. He is a name that will be known to many of you. In fact, he may be a person known to many of you. Um, my guest is Dr. Joe Poyman. Uh, Dr. Poyman is the founder and executive director of the Texas Alliance for Life, a nonpartisan, nonsectarian pro-life organization whose goals are to protect innocent human life from conception through natural death using peaceful, legal means. Joe holds a PhD in aerospace engineering from the University of Texas at Austin, a Bachelor of Science in Aerospace Engineering, and a Bachelor of Arts in Philosophy, both from the University of Notre Dame. His professional work experience includes three years as an engineer at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston, and he and his wife live here in Austin, and they have four kids. Uh, thanks so much, Joe, for joining us, and welcome. Thanks for having me on, Kevin. Well, I want to start today with what seems to me from the bio the obvious place to start. How does an aerospace engineer at NASA wind up leading a pro-life organization? Well, along the way, I was working as an engineer in NASA in the early 80s, and that was the early part of the space shuttle program. Those were really exciting, heady times. I decided to pursue a PhD in aerospace engineering at the University of Texas, came to Austin. Along the way, um, I started volunteering for pro-life activities and became more involved. And now, Kevin, I am way over my head. That's the short story. But basically, you know, we have to follow what God wants. And I believe that, um, uh, and I continue to believe that there were enough aerospace engineers to do the kind of work I was doing, and there were not enough people doing pro-life. I felt very strongly compelled to get more and more involved in pro-life movement. Um, along the way, I got married and my wife was very supportive. And here I am. I'm the, the executive director of this organization, Texas Alliance for Life. Great. I imagine that your background in science actually has come in handy over the years. Um, you know, starting with, with the precision and the methods and the understanding that you have there. Is that, is that right? The first thing I did when I decided to start getting involved is to look to see if the claim was true, the claim that human life begins at conception. Now, my training is not in biology, but I can read technical books, manuals, uh, papers, and I've discovered very quickly that it has been a, a decided question since the early part of the 19th century, and certainly by the end of the 19th century, that human life does begin in conception. That was very important for me. Um, and that continues to be important. When we make claims, we have to be very, very certain about that. And we're talking about changing people's lives, changing a whole nation. Um, we make the claim that, uh, and the whole movement is based on this idea that within a woman who is pregnant is another human being. Uh, 
And that is a human being, the same as a human being cradled in her, her womb as a newborn baby cradled in her arms, essentially the same, a member of society. And, and so my, I guess my scientific background made me very critical of, of that claim. And I became very confident that is indeed a very, um, I'm very certain of that. And, and everyone is who's, who's in the scientific community, whether they <laughs> admit it or not. Right. Yeah. We've largely moved from, it seems like in this area, moved in many cases from scientific questions, which can be sort of pettifogged in political debates to disguise from us what's what are, as you've just laid out, sort of plain and well-acknowledged scientific facts. We often move from there into sort of political Exactly. Territory. And now the issue is not whether the, the unborn child is a baby. Yes, Cecile Richards, when she was plan, uh, head of Planned Parenthood, she said that the lives of her babies began when they were born. I mean, that's so ridiculous. Of course, they began nine months before that. And she knew that. And the obstetrician who treated her probably said, uh, Mrs. Richards, here is, your baby is doing very well, you know, um, your unborn baby. But I think now the, the debate has moved to whether that's even important, whether it's important that the unborn child's a baby. And, and now the, and, and there's a movement away from discussing that, which is just to say, well, women, you know, a couple of things. Women need abortion to compete with men in society. That's more important than determining whether uh, an unborn child is, um, is alive and a person. Um, this society that this planet can only sustain a certain number of people, and we have to limit that. And abortion is a very efficient way to limit the population, especially in places like Africa and, and Latin America and, and uh, Asia and China. Um, so, so it's interesting how they, once we won that debate, the other side changed the subject. Yeah, it does strike me. I was just about to say, it strikes me as a kind of victory, um, a, a partial one for sure, but also a victory for sure to have the science be clear here and to be well acknowledged. And that opened up for me the question of, could you kind of take us through a few of the highlights and lowlights, the major victories and setbacks that you've seen so that we get a sense of the course of the movement over the time that you've been involved? It's been, I guess you'd say sinusoidal, up and down, but overall increasing. The overall trend is increasing. We've had ups and downs. We've had a recent election. Very disappointing for a lot of us. You know, we we had a pro-life president, had some warts, um, had some had some flaws, uh, and that's not unusual. I, I like to remind myself that the last perfect public official died on the cross two thousand years ago. No one else matches up. So uh, yes, Trump was imperfect, but he was very pro-life and did so many things. He lost an election. That's that's just the case. Um, but. It's not. It's not the end. Um, we have gone through 16 years of this. We had the um, we had the Clinton Gore administration for eight years, a disaster on the pro life movement. He, we had the um, Obama Biden administration, another eight years. We have been through 16 years of this, and I think it not only shows that the pro life movement was resilient. We did not go away. We did not get despondent. We grew, and I remind myself that the muscle gets stronger as we exercise it. It will continue to get stronger. So that, that's kind of the low point. Uh, personally, for me, one of the strong, one of the highlights is the fact that, the, well, just in general, the pro-life movement in Texas continues to grow. We, be, we are a huge leader 
in in the nation on on the pro life issue. I'm very proud of that. That's not just Texas Alliance for Life. That's a whole lot of people working on different fronts. This tremendous infrastructure of agencies that provide compassionate alternatives to abortion in Texas, hundreds of them. Um, some of them have get government assistance, some do not, but they're there to help tens of thousands of women. Uh, one, another interesting thing, uh, a highlight for me was the passage of a bill in 2003 called the Prenatal Protection Act. That's a bill that protected unborn babies beginning at fertilization from violent acts like homicide and assault. An unborn child cradled in the mother's womb is as much a person from the point of view of criminal law, murder laws, as a newborn child cradled in her arms. That And there are people serving life sentences for killing an unborn child, regardless of whether the mother survived the assault. So, you know, there's been a lot of ups and downs. Overall, we are gaining ground. Yeah, that reminds me, political philosopher Hadley Arcus says that when you're, when you're making incremental change, the part of the goal, part of the strategy is to implant the premises in the law from which the inexorable conclusion will someday follow, <laughs> yes. right? And the one you, the victory you just outlined strikes me as a huge example of that, where the premise is now in the law that, that, the, that Miss Richards' babies were babies before the day they were born. Right. That's right. That is in the law. That's in the criminal law. People can sue for wrongful death of an unborn child. Um, that is that is the law, um, but the law could not protect babies from abortion because the Supreme Court will not allow states to. We'll probably talk about more of that in a minute, and, and hopefully that is in our near future, but if not, certainly in our distant future. Yeah, I wanted to ask you some, you know, thinking about that history of the the ups and downs, the great victories, and and some of the setbacks. Have you gotten a sense of what works for persuasion? So as you've seen converts, so to speak, come come over, either they were lukewarm or maybe they were even out and out um, on the other side, and you've won them or you've seen other people win them to the pro-life cause. I'm interested not just in this particular cause, but in politics more broadly. How do we speak to people in a way that um, that they will hear that doesn't sort of water down what we what we're passionate about and what we think, but also that is effective in the sense of of persuasion. And this seems like an issue where people's opinions either are already quite hardened or they get that way even from a fairly young age. And so, if if on any issue people were going to be in, totally intractable, it would be abortion. And yet we see high profile instances of people changing their minds and. Um, what I wonder and want to ask the expert is, how does that happen? It's interesting. I, last uh, The summer before last, I was up at Notre Dame for that, uh, that pro-life seminar that they have. It's magnificent. And there was a priest who spoke about persuading people. And it was about someone trying to confront someone who is very militantly against you. And he said, you know, the first thing you need to do is make him your friend. Uh, because so much of how we persuade things is not so much what we say, it's how we conduct ourselves, how we show respect for other people. Uh, I, when I, way back when, did some media training, they said 80% of what you will convey is how you look, 15% is how you sound, and 5% is what you actually say, which is a little bit humbling because I think what I say is fantastic. But the fact is, you know, it's how, how, we, how we respect other people and, and do that. And I've had to become humbled and just realize some people, I'm not going to convert. 
But the, I try to go after those middle ground people who are ambivalent, and and uh, it may take time to bring them around. It might take time, but we have to stick to our, be uncompromising in our, in our um, fundamental principles. But at the same time, we have to be sometimes a little at a time to bring people to our side, those middle ground people. And sometimes it is just becoming a friend to them first. Now, in a mass media uh, thing, it's it's obviously different. You're, it's not about making people uh, your friend, but it is about not turning them off with offensive language, uh, with harsh language. Um, what I like about the pro-life movement, and I think every movement probably has this in common, there are nice people involved. We're nice people. We dress nicely. We talk nicely. We can we we look just great. Um, I like the rallies that we have. People, so we give a good impression, and that's that for the mass market. That is so important. We are young people. We have old people. We have children. We have young adults. Um, we are we come across very nicely, and and that's so much of what can turn off a movement or attract turn off people to a movement or attract people to a movement. No, that I think that's that's very helpful. Um, I wanted to ask also. You mentioned the fact that you're looking for some of those middle ground people um, who are who are a bit ambivalent, and um, you have uh, you quite visibly worked with not just Republicans but also Democrats. So on both sides of the aisle, there was a day, of course, not just in Texas politics but in American politics, where that was common, that was normal. Um, it's become increasingly less normal, first in Washington, and then it's trickled down to the states now. And so what I wondered was, you know, what what's that, what's going on at the Capitol? Because ostensibly we have two major parties, right? A red party and a blue party. But in actuality, it looks like we've got beneath those big tents, there are sort of factions and groups and people that you know are not... Um, not easily persuadable, people that you know are kind of close to you or not close to you and where they are, which tent they're under, right, may change from issue to, to issue. So what does the landscape really look like pro-life-wise, both in a partisan sense and in a or in a uh, factional sense? What is the lay of the legislative landscape? Yeah, in the Texas legislature, it has gotten very polarized. Unfortunately, when I first got involved 30 years ago, there were Lots of pro-life Democrats. Some of the easy to find a Democrat who was authoring a pro-life bill. That has changed. Um, the and, and it got polarized in in one good sense that every single Republican in the Senate and every single Republican in the House is pro-life, and we can count on their votes. Now it doesn't mean people shouldn't be contacting their own state senator or representative who's Republican. They need that help. We uh, but but that is the case among the Democrats. Um, it is really hard to find pro-life votes among Democrats. We have one 100% pro-life Democrat in the Senate. Um, our organization gave him our Courageous Defense of Life Award uh, about a year ago. The In the House, we have one staunchly pro-life Democrat. We will get Democrats on some votes for some bills, but not others. For example, the bill that required doctors to properly treat a baby who's born alive after abortion the Born Alive Infant Protection Act, we've got um, more than a dozen Democrats who, who voted for that in the House. That was pretty unusual. Um, on other pro-life bills, we got practically none. Uh, 
So it kind of varies on the thing. Again, some of those people, I'm quite sure and have actually confided in me that if their districts, if they felt confidently that that their districts were would support them on pro-life votes, they would they would vote their conscience because that's where they are. They really are pro-life. They just can't, they feel politically they can't do that. And you know, if you think of if you've ever been in a swimming in a pool and you hold your breath and you can't don't have any breath in it, what's that huge reaction is to come up and breathe? Well, for an elected official, an even stronger urge is to get reelected. <laughs> so I mean, it's you've you've got to work with those with those people and try and get be where they are and try and bring them up to a vote as much as we can. Yeah, see, that's interesting because it indicates that while there's a fair amount of work to do and you're doing it down at the Capitol itself, there's also a lot of work to be done in the districts because you're not going to be able to get those ambivalent middle-of-the-road folks unless they feel like there's a permission structure in place with the electorate in their district. That is exactly right. They have to, and typically they do have to vote to districts. Of course, senators, state senators, have four-year terms, so they don't have to get reelected after each cycle. Representatives have two-year terms. And by the way, they make, they make uh, what is it, $400 a month. I mean, they're not there for money. They're there because essentially they're citizen legislators, essentially volunteers, and they want to do the right thing and they want to do what their district says, but they do want to get reelected. And we have to support them back home. That makes a lot of sense. Well, that brings us nicely Um, That segues nicely into another one of the questions I was thinking earlier today I wanted to ask you, and that is in light of, you mentioned the presidential election, in light of the new administration in Washington, um, what is kind of the movement's strategy with a different administration in Washington, um, especially with regards to Texas? In other words, how should we expect the fact of a Biden administration in Washington to affect Texas, and particularly to affect the pro-life movement here in Texas? Without question, the pro-life movement is is on the defensive with regard to Washington. The Biden administration has a lot of favors to pay back for the the constituency, the the part of their base, which is just militantly pro-abortion, the Planned Parenthood people, the National Abortion Rights Action League people, the hardcore uh, Democratic National Committee people who just see abortion as one of their core issues. So they have to, the Biden administration has already begun dismantling much of the structure that the Trump administration has put into place. The first thing the Biden administration did is allow funding for organizations internationally who promote abortion with our tax dollars. Trump had cut that off. Clinton, I'm sorry, um, I, um, President Reagan had had uh, cut that off first. Then George W. Bush, Herbert Walker Bush, and George W. Bush. Uh, the Trump administration continued to cut that off. Now it's back, that, and that's bad. This is the Mexico City. The policy. Mexico City policy, exactly. We're trying to see what comes next, and um, we we there was a lot of conscience protection for medical providers. Uh, that was put in by executive order. We expect that will come be dismantled one piece at a time. We're not sure which one will be next. So in Texas, we're going to have to see what that means. Um, the, the big issue is the Hyde Amendment. The Hyde Amendment is that law that's been in place since 1980, and it prevents tax dollars from going to actually pay for abortions in are the Medicaid program, and not just a few, hundreds of thousands. Before that law was passed, there were hundreds of thousands of babies who lost their lives 
paid for by the, the federal and state Medicaid program. So we know the goals, and it's not hard to see this. Um, it's in their emails, it's on their websites, the pro-abortion forces. They want to see the Hyde Amendment go. They want our tax dollars to be used for abortions. That would be very unpopular, but it will be a fight. If, if that did get eliminated, the Hyde Amendment, we could see, oh my gosh, millions of dollars in Texas going for abortions. And we would probably see the abortion facilities just proliferate as they had been in, uh, as, as recently as five or 10 years ago. So um, it's scary. We have to be on guard for that. And we, we, we have to resist that. Yeah. Well, let's um, bring it down to Texas then. We've got, <clears throat> we've got a session going. The legislature is in session only every other year. So uh, what should we expect? Kind of what take us from what happened last session and then where that went in the courts in the intervening time to what we can expect legislation-wise this session. Well, you're, you're uh, way more up on this than most people because you know that the legislature meets every other year. So for us who work in the Capitol, Christmas comes once every two years. And Christmas meaning that an opportunity to pass pro-life laws. Texas has an enormous number of things that have been passed over the years. Uh, last session we had, uh, last session, which was two years ago, we had a, a quite a successful session. Um, one of the prominent bills was that Born Alive Infant Protection Act. Um, come to find out that now we have some decent reporting, we think, to the state by abortion providers. And over the last two years, there were 10 babies born alive from abortion. And the new law should protect those, Not, um, but that ha has been going on. Uh, some other things like we continue- Let's, let's pause there just a yes. moment for anyone who doesn't understand the Born Alive Infant Protection Act. There've been a number of these around the around the country. Um, it's it's almost sort of breathtaking that you have to say what it, what it does, but yes. what it does is if an abortion goes wrong and goes wrong in quotes, and the baby actually survives it, then you must render medical care to that baby. That's right. The same as you would a baby who was born at that gestational age from natural birth. You just can't let that baby languish and die. It, it seems almost, I say it's breathtaking because it seems almost bizarre that you would need that you would need an additional law that says that. Yes, and one of the people on our board of directors who um, I've gotten to know is a young woman who grew up in Austin, was adopted, and when she was about 20, she decided to seek out her birth mother. And when she met her birth mother, her birth mother confided that she gave birth to Claire, Claire Caldwell, when she was 13 or 14, and Claire had survived an abortion. The woman had an, was forced to have an abortion by her parents, and she, um, um, the Claire survived the abortion and then was placed for adoption. And when Claire was twenty, then she not only realized that she was adopted, but she realized she had survived an abortion. And she was very critical in testifying in the legislature to the fact that there are people like this who exist. In fact, we know of four hundred or more nationwide. So I guess. I talk about it a lot and I forget how striking and just unbelievable this is um, that it happens, number one, and two, that other that you have to explain it, um, that, that, it's, that it is striking to people and it really is. Um, other, there, so we've had a lot of successes in the legislature. Um, over the years, over the 30 years I've been there, we've I, we compiled this list and my staff and I came up with 10 pages of single space type including that Prenatal Protection Act, defunding Planned Parenthood, parental consent for abortion. 
just over the last 10 years, abortions uh, per year, the number of abortions per year has plummeted by 20,000 per year. From 2010, 77,000 to 2019, 57,000. And yes, 57,000 is a horrendous number, but it's not 77,000. I think of the tens of thousands of babies born every year now who are are being um, are growing up to be citizens, great citizens of Texas. So um, now we're going into this session. What do we what do we want to do? We think the time is right to actually pass a ban on abortion, a complete ban on abortion, beginning at fertilization. But this ban would go into effect when and to the extent the Supreme Court overturns or modifies Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey. That bill is called the, the um, born, I'm sorry, it's called the Human Life Protection Act. It's already introduced, um, and it, we think the time is right because now we have, uh, we think perhaps five, at least maybe six votes on the Supreme Court who are willing to take a fresh look at the terrible precedent of Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, and look at that unencumbered by the previous precedent. Let's take a fresh look at it, and and perhaps they will allow states to do more to protect babies before they're viable. That's that's the standard. That's our hope. So that's the so-called trigger, the trigger law, ban. Right? Yes. So there's a number. There are a number of states with trigger bans. Ten states and two more, two or three more in the in the works. Yeah. Who is carrying that legislation here? So do you? Yeah. Do you know? the, the the bill is um, being carried by state senator. Angela Paxton from McKinney, okay, and uh, also by State Representative Giovanni Capriglione. Okay. He's from Keller, which is in Fort Worth. Um, two very credible authors. Um, the bill is, um, again, would protect those babies when and to the extent the Supreme Court acts. There's a bill, there's a possible case that the Supreme Court might take up, which is a gestational ban, 15-week ban, um, it would ban abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. That's out of Mississippi. The Supreme Court might take that case. Now, if they take the case and if they uphold that law, if this if this um, born alive infant, I'm sorry, if this uh, Human Life Protection Act has been passed, then Texas would immediately our law would start banning abortions after 15 weeks. If another state's law that protects babies once their heartbeat is detected, which is seven, eight, 10 weeks, if that were upheld by the Supreme Court, then the our, our law would immediately go on. If something more subtle happened, like the Supreme Court changed the standard of review from the undue burden standard to maybe a rational basis, our law would immediately mimic that. It works with the Supreme Court. So we think that really is the best way to go. And we should join those other states that have passed a, um, a trigger ban. That's fascinating. So it it keeps the ratchet moving down, um, but without further legislation needed. Without further legislation, if if the Supreme Court acts, oh, um, when the legislature is out of session, the governor wouldn't have to call a special session to deal with the issue. It would already be there. It would be triggered by the action of the Supreme Court. So it'll just it'll just codify that Texas will have the strongest legal pro life standard. 
Exactly. And we'll do as exactly as much as is possible permitted by the Supreme Court. And for those who think, well, we just have to ignore the Supreme Court. And I know those people are out there. They're very passionate. We should just ignore the courts and do what's right. Follow man, Don't follow man's law, follow God's law and so forth. Well, I just point out that there are three branches of government. And one of those is the judiciary. And it's not, it's unconstitutional to forget the judiciary, we can't. And for those who say, well, we just have to ignore them, I kind of make the analogy to the man who wants to ignore the force of gravity. And um, you know, if he steps off the tall building, he is ignoring this, the force of gravity is not going to protect him. <laughs> so <laughs> we just have to do what we can as much as we can, as quickly as we can. And that is the Human Life Protection Act. Okay, so Human Life Protection Act, that's one one big, that's a big item. That's a big item. Just as big is something that kind of anticipates what the Biden administration would do, which would be to greatly relax the FDA regulations that protect women who are having chemical abortions with the RU46 abortion pill. If those regulations get relaxed, uh, those met that method of abortion is going to just mushroom in Texas and across the country. We have some pretty good protections in place right now, but they would become much more common. One of the things, abortion is an abortion regardless from the point of view of the baby, but we're the pro-life movement and we also wanna protect women as well. Even a woman who's having an abortion, sometimes especially a woman who's having an abortion. So we already know that chemical abortions are four times more dangerous for women, four times more complications for women than surgical abortions. We don't want those, this method to proliferate, especially not to allow women to have mail order abortions where they could just go to some website, get something delivered to their home, take this pill, not knowing that they may be have an ectopic pregnancy, a tubal pregnancy, which is life-threatening. And if undiagnosed, even if there's no doctor in the picture, that puts her at great risk. So uh, there's another bill that is authored by uh, Senator Eddie Lucio Jr. He's from uh, the Valley, a pro-life Democrat. And that bill would put in place safety protections for these chemical abortions. So those are two of our top priorities. Yeah, uh, now we get we get over the water gets over my head quickly in the in this area on the uh, the chemical abortions. But if I remember correctly, one of the problems with not administering those in a clinical environment is that there are certain blood chemistry problems, which if not attended to in the use of a, of a chemical abortifacient, can result in sterility or worse afterwards. That's correct. As I mentioned, we had the problem with ectopic pregnancies, which is not all that uncommon. So you don't want to have an ectopic pregnancy that's undiagnosed, which would be the case if a woman were just doing this, you know, in her own home, not administered by a physician. Another has to do with um, the RH factor. And if that is not properly handled, the woman could be rendered fertile for subsequent pregnancies. Infertile, I'm sorry. And that's a that's a serious problem too. And you know, I know the 18, 19 year old young woman says, well, I'm pregnant now. I know I'll never want to get pregnant again. I mean, we, we don't know that when we're 18 or 19 or 25 or whatever. I mean, this is just terrible medicine to, to say that women um, should be allowed to do these, they call it home managed abortion. That's ridiculous. That's not how medicine is supposed to be practiced, even abortion. Yeah, that's right. So those are a couple of pieces of legislation. That, um, 
Is there more? I don't want to. We do have. We well, yeah, we do have yeah. more. Um, don't want to do, uh, do a lengthy thing, but here here's a really interesting one, and it has to do with conscience protection for medical residents. Now, if I'm a medical resident, I'm I'm a physician, but I'm getting trained to, for different specialties like obstetrics, gynecology. The uh, the I should not be forced as part of that residency training to participate in elective abortion. I shouldn't be forced to do that. And the federal law anticipated that there was something called the Church Amendments passed way back in, I think, 1974, 75, shortly after Roe v. Wade, that says residents, medical medical personnel, they can't be discriminated by hospitals if they perform, if they're involved in abortion or don't want to be involved in abortion. Well, that, that should include medical residents. Many of the training programs are basically expecting these residents to participate in abortion. A medical school in here in Austin, Texas, is marching residents down to Planned Parenthood where they participate in abortions or are expected to. Technically, they can they should be able to get out of that, but it's it's a tough slog to to do that. So here's a law, an idea for a law that would number one require that the residents be informed that they don't have to participate in abortion. And that's consistent with federal and state law. So they're informed of that. Secondly, if they want to perform abortions as part of the training, and there's going to be alternate pro methods, or methods of training, but if they want to, they have to opt in. So the expectation is they don't have to perform abortions. They'd have to opt in. For the certifying the residency programs, they have to allow that option. We get that, but it, there shouldn't be undue pressure on these, these uh, young men and women to have to be involved in abortion. And you know, it's very sinister. You can see if you get this young person, this young doctor involved in abortion, then I think then is the is it become easier for that person to enter the abortion field, which is so has so few doctors involved in it, so few uh, doctors. And we, we think it's very unfair for, for anyone to have to violate his or her conscience to become a, uh, a full-fledged doctor. Yeah, uh, I also want to emphasize the importance of moves like the opt switching from opt out as the default to opt in. Um, those little nudges may sound trivial, but they actually have a tremendous. They can have a tremendous impact. We human beings, um, we, we don't. It turns out we don't have to put really big obstacles in our way in order for a lot of us to be discouraged from doing something or to be diverted to, to another path. Sometimes a little nudge is all it takes. And so it might sound, it might sound small potatoes to, to shift from an opt out to an opt in, but actually those, those kinds of changes um, can, can have really profound results. I'm glad to hear you say that. And I, and I really think that's true because it's basically making a statement that the state of Texas expectation is that they not participate in abortion and they have to do something special to ascend into that. Um, well, I shouldn't say ascend, but maybe if the word is descend. But the point is the expectation should be that people should not have to take the lives of innocent unborn babies in order to become doctors. Yeah, that that seems right. Um end of life issues are we going to see we've talked about sort of a before birth what about end end of life issues will there be legislation around that this there time there may be and and um, we are very concerned about that issue that the state of Texas does not allow allow euthanasia in other words taking action 
to deliberately end the life of somebody either through assisted suicide or some other other means, that's that's already illegal. Um, not to say that there aren't abuses out there. I'm sure there are. It's a huge state, but but at least on the law, we're we're very good. There is, um, but there is a uh, been a controversy for the last several sessions about what happens when a physician and the the family of a patient who's, for example, terminally ill, what if they disagree over the appropriate level of interventions? Um, uh, My doctor and your doctor, I mean, typically we can expect them to follow what we want 99.9% of the time, and hopefully that is the case. And if not, you know, I have fired my doctor sometimes and find another one. I mean, that is certainly always the an option. But what if you've got a case where the, the family says, you know, please, can you give my father another round of chemotherapy to keep him, keep him alive? Um, and the doctor says, well, you know, I could do that, but I can assure you it's not going to do more than just prolonging his life a few days or weeks or maybe a month or so. And it's going to be very difficult for him to endure that. I think we should change strategies and try to make him as comfortable as possible as he faces his his inevitable death. But I will help you find an alternate provider so that if you if you really want to, I will help you find an alternate provider. That law has been that that sets up that dispute resolution process and the way to resolve that is called the Texas Advanced Directives Act. It's been in Texas law for 20 years. It was passed unanimously by the legislature in 1999 and signed into law by then governor George W Bush. Texas Alliance for Life, I was part of the part of the the group at the table that negotiated that with the healthcare providers, ethicists and so forth. The Texas Catholic Conference of Bishops, the Baptists, we were all part of that. And we think it was a really good solution. There are some folks who just think that is wrong that always 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 if the family wants even extraordinary, this is, we're usually talking about very extraordinary interventions, even just to prolong the death a short time, um, the, the physician must follow that all the time. And we have to point out that physicians, nurses, they're moral agents. They have a conscience and they should not be required by the gun of threat of lawsuits or administrative penalty or something to do something that, that violates that person's conscience, at least, you know, indefinitely. At least maybe for for a short time while you help find an alternate provider. So we don't yet know what bills are going to be introduced in that, but Texas Alliance for Life joins the Texas Catholic Conference of Bishops, the Texas Baptist Christian Life Commission, Coalition of Texans with Disabilities, uh, a, a bunch of healthcare providers like the Texas Medical Association, Texas Hospital Association. We're all working together to keep that dispute resolution in, pl- in place and find some ways to improve it to continue to add protections for families and, and patients and, and increase the due process that already is in law. And by the way, we have the very best law in the country with regard to resolving disputes with far and away more due, per- due process protections for, for patients than any other state. Well, that, that's, uh, that's good to hear. Right. It's uh, as as someone who's not a physician, and so will will always be a patient in those situations. It's uh, it's that's good to know. I want to put together a couple of pieces that we've had out on the table. Um, suppose that some folks are listening and motivated. They want to they want to get involved. Let's. I want to I want to ask how they should get involved in light of our conversation about what is actually effective and persuasive and will 
how they can do their part to move the needle, so to speak, if they want to get involved with, whether it's Texas Alliance for Life or contacting their own state senator representative, how should they best go about being involved? Well, I love this part of the discussion because that's that's what really makes a grassroots organization is getting people involved. We don't know, know necessarily are cognizant of this, and we think about government being in Washington, D.C., but most of the laws that govern our lives are passed at the state level. In Austin, in the Texas Capitol. Um, and they, and we are not even aware of this perhaps, but each of us, depending on where we live, has one state representative and one state senator. And that person needs to hear from us. And they are very responsive. Now, if you have a hardcore pro-abortion person and you're pro-life, that may, may not switch his vote from, and frankly, we have some pro-lifers who have told me and they mean it. They, they would sooner lose an election than to than to not vote pro-life, but they need to hear from us. So how do you know who is um, who, who your state senator and representative is? That's, that is available from the government website. We have that on our website, texasallianceforlife.org. If people get on our email list, we make it really easy for you through our emails to know who your state representative, your state senator is, what the bill is, for example, the Human Life Protection Act, that will pass if we have sufficient grassroots support. If we don't have enough support, it's going to languish and not pass and some, something else will pass. Uh, maybe not on the life issue. But So getting involved in our government is just huge. You don't have to drive to Austin, but just make sending that email or that phone call at the right time. And I, I'm very proud that our organization, I think, is very good at reaching out to people via email and letting you know what you need to do to, to contact that person. And I can tell you, it makes a big difference. I was in a state senator's office. A state senator has um, a, almost a million people in that office. And the staffer was totaling something. And I said, hmm, what is that? She says, well, we're just getting slammed by phone calls and emails over some issue. It was not a life issue. I, but I was very intrigued. What does slammed mean? Well, it turns out, she said, over three or four days, they had gotten 50 contacts from constituents in their, their own district, 50 out of almost a million people. And that really caught their attention. This was a senior staffer in a, in a um, state senator's office. So you can make a huge effect by contacting your state senator and your state representative. Yeah, there's, there's a great deal of cynicism abroad in politics today, but I have found what you just described over and over again through the years that actually m- most of our representatives and senators want to be responsive to their constituents. Most of them are quite happy to have a phone call, reply to an email, or even have an in-person meeting when that is less fraught than it is right now. But even have an in-person meeting with a constituent yes. about issues that are important to them. They're incredibly available, um, often just waiting for people to, to contact them. And as you just said, it's possible to have a pretty major impact um, by just doing that. If just a few people do that, it feels like there's a lot of attention and weight behind this issue, whatever the issue is. Yeah, it, it really is. Uh, the the um, It's hard to understand until you've been there, but I mean, you can just take, take our word for it. Our government is, our state government is really open. Now, COVID is a little more difficult because everybody's concerned. It might, might not be as easy as usual to get a meeting with your own state representative, but typically... Any person can get a, a meeting with his own state representative during the session. A senator, because they have so many more people, um, 
maybe not so easy, but you can get a meeting with a staffer and that will be communicated to them. And that is so valuable. By the way, the Texas Capitol is open. You can get in there. You will get a free COVID test because on the north side, they have some tents set up and the National Guard's there, I think, and they are administering these free 15-minute tests. And, and then you can get your test, get the results and go in and meet with your state senator and your state representative. It's a really open process and it's quite fun, actually. I think Texans should be should be proud of that that our that even as big as Texas is our our legislature our government our politics is still very open very very open and there will be times be, that there will be committee hearings a committee hearing of course a bill has to pass both the house and the senate and before we can get, get to the house floor or before we can get to the senate floor it has to pass a committee that handles that particular issue so there will be a time when we'll ask people to come to the capitol and sign up and just lodge your support. Sometimes we'll ask key people to come, physicians or constituents or perhaps women who've had abortions and they regretted it and so forth, to come and testify. And it's it's a very open process. And I can go in and testify on a bill on banking or a bill. I mean, it's not like Congress where you have to uh, be, be invited and so forth. It's just wide open. It's fascinating. And it is how our government works. And it's a shame so few people really participate in that. Well, there you go. We will put uh, the bills that you mentioned by number and uh, with with the authors down in the show notes. So if people want more information, they can look that up. And why don't you give us your, your website address one more time? Great. Yeah. We are, the name of the organization is Texas Alliance for Life, and we are at Texas Alliance for Life. All one word spelled out, texasallianceforlife.org. Great. Well, I want to say thank you once again to Dr. Joe Poyman for joining us today on TextLedge. Uh, until next time, I am your host, Kevin Stewart. See you then. Thank you all for listening to TextLedge, a podcast from the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating and please donate so we can do even more.